1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Richard G. Marks, who's Professor Emeritus in the Department of Religion at um, um, uh, Washington and Lee University. Uh, We'll be talking about a fascinating new book called Jewish Approaches to Hinduism A History of Ideas from Judah Halevi to Jacob uh, Sapir, and we'll learn more about those figures as we continue the podcast. Um, and this podcast will certainly uh, be cross-posted to new books in Jewish studies as well. So Richard, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you.
0: So you have what strikes me as a, as a, as a fascinating niche and interest in, in studying that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you study, one of the things you study is the way in which Hinduism has been received by various Jewish thinkers. Would that be an accurate characterization of your research interest?
1: Yeah, it, um, it, it, in a sense, it is a reception history. Um, it, it's um, especially a, a history of marred, uh, spoiled reception <laughs> of misunderstandings. Uh, but it is, yeah, how it, uh, Hinduism was received. And even even the word Hinduism um, means something different for each of the authors that I studied. But it is that, yes.
0: I, I, I find it quite fascinating. Could you say a little bit, if you don't mind, about what drew you to this, to this niche?
1: Uh, um... I spent about five or six years in Thailand teaching and became interested in um, in Theravada Buddhism and learned about it. and that's what I know better than than Hinduism. Um, but I started asking myself as a Jewish scholar and and as a Jew, uh, what what's the relationship between Judaism and, and Buddhism, um, and I came up with a few answers and mostly not <laughs> uh, uh, mostly questions, unanswered questions about Buddhism. Um, then, as a Jewish scholar, I was trained at UCLA in uh, the history of ideas, history of Jewish ideas, I guess, and um, Uh, I realized that uh, Jews encountered Southern Asia not through Buddhism until very recently, but through Hinduism. And uh, that drew me to the subject of what they thought, what happened uh, in their minds when they learned what they learned (laughs) about uh, the religion. Religion and practices, the beliefs and practices of uh, South India. Uh, so. so,
0: yeah, yeah, no, I, I just I I find I honestly find that quite rich for a number of reasons. Um, 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 uh, firstly, historically, but secondly, with respect to what we might learn um, uh, in terms of interfaith discourse or reception of religion in in modern times. So, I feel that that examining these views and these reception histories can be instructive for, you know, our present world. Um, would you agree with that? Or would you say it's too far removed?
1: Oh, well, it, I hope that my book will be instructive, illuminating, and will uh, provide perspective for, uh, I guess it's more, more Jews. Well, it could be both Jews and Hindus um, who are thinking about the other person's religion. Uh, for Jews, the perspective is just to see how Jews of the past who were immersed in their specific historical settings and had their own ideas and their own arguments and and, and intellectual conflicts to face, how, how they, out of that historical particularity, how they... Um, Engaged in the um, in thinking about Hinduism, and um, so uh, if a a Jew today wants to develop a theology, a Jewish theology of Hinduism, it would be good to learn what religious Jews of the past have already done. and I, I think for Hindus, it would, <laughs> it's probably interesting to find out all the problems that another culture had in trying to understand uh, their own religion.
0: Now, um, would you say the, the audience for this book, uh, is primarily as you just characterize as uh, Jews or Hindus, or would you say that um, perhaps it's broader for, for those who may not be affiliated? particularly with the religion, who just want to understand these dynamics.
1: Yes, yes. I, ho- I hope that people will be interested in uh, finding out, um, um, in, in learning about the problems and, and challenges of intercultural understanding and um, a whole history, a variety of mistakes that have been made in the past um, but it's a very complicated enterprise to try to study people, to learn about people and speak honestly about them. people who live far away, and uh, usually in the uh, in the case of the authors I studied, your information their information was secondhand or thirdhand. and um, uh, they had to, They probably weren't aware (laughs) of how faulty their information was. But anyway, there's just all sorts of problems involved in trying to understand uh, a foreign people with a very complex and sophisticated um, way of life.
0: Now... uh I, I realize there's tons of data in the book. You look at nine case studies, nine situations. But with respect to what you're, what you're calling problems, the problems with this sort of encounter, do you want to highlight a couple and share what some of that, uh, w- w- share in your view what, what has been problematic, or uh, share a couple of, of the, the prime examples with us?
1: a good idea. But uh, <laughs> Well, I'll start with the first one. Uh, Judah Halevi lived in 12th century Spain. He uh, had an education in um, uh, both traditional rabbinic texts, traditional Jewish texts, as well as a, a secular education in uh, uh, poetry and, um, and science and philosophy of the times. So, uh, usually, yeah, Arabic language philosophy. So he knew Arabic and he knew uh, Hebrew and he more or less assumed when he started talking about what the people were. Well, when he started talking about Indian beliefs, he more or less assumed that he understood completely what they thought Um, that they served a purpose in his book. Uh, this this book uh, was called the Kusari, which was to defend traditional Judaism, especially against uh, Arist- Aristotelian philosophy. They, the Indians served a particular purpose, um, a polemical purpose, which was much more important to him than trying to find out what they really thought. <laughs> Uh, um, So anyway, uh, his image of them was composed of what was circulating in the Muslim world at that time. So uh, almost all Spanish Jews of that period knew about India. They learned about India from Arabic travel reports, from Muslim um, uh, geographies, from Muslim, um, uh, her, what's my word, <laughs> her, uh, heresiographies, that is, um, studies of, or, of other religions, uh, and um, also from uh, Islamic science, uh, which spoke a lot about Indian theories of mathematics, uh, astrology, and astronomy. So the um, educated Jews of Spain thought they knew and and had information, had at least data about Indians. So um, all of this came together for Judah Halevi uh, when he learned uh, from this information that Indians claim to have very ancient buildings older than the date of the Bible and um, that they read a book called that he knew as the, um, book of Nabataean agriculture. And that book was, oh, we, we know a lot about that book now, but it was a book of, um, astrology and theurgy, um, and, uh, how to, and agriculture, <laughs> agricultural techniques, um, and it was based on the idea that the earth was eternal, that human civilization was very, very ancient, 10,000s and thousands of years old. The biblical date at his time was, um, I think, around 4,500 years old, so it was much older. So he inaccurately associated this book, which it really came from the Middle East somewhere. He associated this book with Indians, especially because of astrology and um, assumed that that's what they believed. Um, so you, you have all the, oh, and okay, together with all that, um, he took in what Muslims were saying about uh, non-monotheistic religions. And they saw non-monotheistic religions as a combination of what they called Barahima and Sabians. The Barahima uh, were uh, um, ideological groups who rejected prophecy um, and later became associated with Brahmins. And the Sabians who appear in the Quran three times uh, uh, came to be um understood pictured uh, in by medieval Muslims as people who um worship you know, venerated the the stars and planets in order to gain astrological power from them and those two images came together in Halevi's view of of Indians <laughs> and and uh built what he thought about uh, built built his image so it was it, so it was very complicated about uh, what he actually knew about Indians uh, there were many uh, many influences on his thinking that he just assumed to be true and there was this incomplete uh, information that came from travel reports of uh, Arab travelers who were not very Um, sophisticated in talking about religion, and uh, mainly talked about uh, exotic, exciting things that that, uh, they noticed, and didn't really talk to um, Indians in any depth. So this was a problem. Did I? (laughs) I forgot what your uh, question
0: was. Oh, the questions are always meant to be generative. The, the, <laughs> it, the, you know, um, it's probably best that you forgot how we began. Um, but <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, so, so a figure such as the one that you're mentioning, what would you say the primary if there is one, was there a primary bent bias, polemic agenda? What do you think was sort of uh, warping this view? Was it just simple, innocent, you know, ignorance in the sense of the absence of proper knowledge? Or was there a particular um, agenda at play in this, um, in this characterization of, of the Indian world?
1: I think you're right about both. I mean, some of it was innocent. She just accepted what everybody else was saying. It was information that was circulating in in his environment. But there was an agenda also because, uh, as I said, the the Indian claimed to have ancient ruins and uh, talking about um, a much older history of human beings, of human life. This threatened to undermine, to actually destroy his main claims about Jewish tradition. Uh, he claimed that we know the truth of Judaism because we have an accurate transmission of, um, of reports that, um, uh, that go all the way back to uh, creation or uh, ideas about creation. And um, this couldn't be true if you were to accept uh, what Indians were saying. So he had to attack them and he attacked them ferociously. Uh, it was the um, harshest attack on Indian thought that appears in uh, the Middle Ages, or maybe the whole history of, of uh, Jewish um, uh, writings about Hinduism.
0: Would you say that it was harshest because it was earliest of the ones that you study? Otherwise, put: is there a trajectory among the thinkers you look at between the 12th and 19th century of um, greater clarity understanding or does it ebb and flow?
1: That's a that's a good question. I wish I had thought of that myself. I no, there is not questions. <laughs>
0: However naive sounding. No kidding. <laughs>
1: um, no. There in in I, I wrote another book called The Um The Image of Barkholfa in Jewish traditional literature. And that uh, there, was, uh, that theme did develop historically. Uh, it came out of the uh, out of the Talmud. Oh, I should talk about who that is. Bar was a Jewish rebel in uh, Roman times, but he uh, was also acclaimed the Messiah. So he had a very important theological um, association and sort of an important uh, problem. Uh, about being called the Messiah and then disappointing everybody who believed in him. So he was a rather an important figure, and Jews kept returning to his story because it was in the Talmud. And I traced this um, tradition of storytelling and interpretation up until the 17th century. In the case of India, what I discovered is, first of all, there, you, you can construct a history of Jewish views of, uh, of India and Hinduism. Because one might think that Jews never said anything about India and Hinduism, but uh, they did. I discovered that they did. And it was, and it was rather interesting and complex what they said. Um, but also, that in the case of Hinduism, the impetus for talking about Hinduism came from outside information. It didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from rabbinic writings like the Talmud. But it, uh, it was circulating in the world that these uh, Jews lived in. And it was different information at different times. So, <clears throat> oh, and <laughs> in addition, uh, usually these Jewish authors didn't know about or didn't learn, or didn't read what earlier Jewish authors had said. So, it would be hard to to have progress. And in fact, um, two of the 19th century authors, the two travelers who went to, uh, who who visited India and observed uh, Hindu religious life in person, they were probably the most prejudicial uh, and disapproving of all the authors. And it didn't do any good for them to actually go to India um, because they didn't talk to, to Indians. They didn't, <clears throat> or, or when they did talk to Indians, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they, when they did talk to Indians, they imposed their own ideas. Uh, they, they didn't listen. They had no sense of, um, Indian feelings about their religious practices. So it was almost, it surprised me to learn that, <clears throat> that there were, <clears throat> that there were, sorry. <laughs> Take your time. <clears throat> so it just, it surprised me to learn that Jewish thinkers of the past could be much more open minded. Uh, Hindu beliefs and practices than these 19th century travelers.
0: That's really fascinating, actually. Um, uh, so, was there anything else that surprised you? What's what stood out to you about these approaches that you study?
1: Yes, they, uh, um, what interested me the most and really kind of excited me it excited me, and it was the biggest challenge was to understand that each of these authors had very different views from the others and each of the uh, authors approaches to the hinduism that they imagined each of their approaches uh was different it had to do with each author's own ideas and intellectual challenges um the the intellectual setting that they lived in, and especially the information. The information uh, kept changing over time, what they were learning ab- about Hinduism. All of this came together. It was, it was just very complex, but it was also sort of fun <laughs> to uh, pull out these threads and see how it all came together with, with each of these authors. But um, uh, uh, another answer to that question is: I was surprised that the 19th century travelers uh, were um, among the most uh, disparaging of the uh, authors that I studied. The travelers—it was that was surprising, just as disparaging as Judah Halevi in the 12th century. Um, but there were also. Um, Very open-minded, very even admiring authors. The most admiring author was Jacob Ben-Elazar in 13th century Toledo in Spain. And he studied, uh, he translated a book that came from India, the Panchatantra, that had been translated into Persian and then translated into Arabic. And he translated the Arabic version of it, which was quite distant by then from the original Sanskrit version, he translated that into Hebrew. And he imagined this as, this book, as the the Torah, the guidance that Indian um, um, philosophers, Indian leaders discovered for themselves through their own reasoning, because they, unfortunately, they lacked uh, revelation. In his mind, they, they could tell that There was a God and a good God in the universe, and this God had a moral uh, law that people had to follow. But they wanted to learn more, and uh, they hoped for a prophet to come to them. But a prophet never did, (laughs) so they decided they had to write down what they could work out through their own uh, mental abilities. They worked this out, and then they told these. Lessons, these moral lessons through uh, animal stories, um, which was the Panchatantra. The original Panchatantra was uh, uh, about uh, politic was political advice, and it was rather Machiavellian. But by the time it got into, it became the Arabic version. It was uh, more moralistic, and then uh, Jacob ben Elazar made it even more moralistic and theological. So that God, um, uh, that morality was based on following the laws of God. Um, Anyway, he was very admiring. And then another admiring author was um, Samson Bloch in the 19th century, who lived in Eastern Europe. And uh, he was part of the Jewish Enlightenment movement movement called Haskalah. Um, and for him, learning about foreign nations was about escaping the stultifying rabbinic education that he had grown up in. It was about going out into the world, and in fact, he called his book "Paths Pathways of the World, Shavile Olam, and India was the uh, almost the first chapter of that, and um, What he he wanted his readers to learn from what he said about India, which was both about its vegetation and its uh, culture, Um, what he wanted them to learn was that there are a lot... Well, first of all, that nature everywhere is the same, and it always shows the glories of God. So there was a theological aspect to it. But about culture, which is... You would wonder what are Jews supposed to learn from a foreign culture... He thought that uh, they could learn about the commonalities among human beings. He believed that there were many common uh, features Um, and he'd identified uh, common beliefs and and practices between Hindus and Jews. And this was very um, open-minded in in this group of Jewish authors that I studied. So for example, um, he, he said, um, um Hindu uh, he didn't call them Hindus he called them Indians started off with a, um, a, a monotheistic belief uh, in, in God and a transcendent God and a God who could not be worshipped uh, in temples and, and he compared that with um, Solomon's prayer uh, about God after Solomon Instructed the temple in Jerusalem that uh, really God could not be uh, contained in this temple. So he, he quotes the Bible a lot. Um, he, um, uh, for the talking about the Brahmins, he uses biblical language uh, that, that uh, the Bible uses for the Kohanim, the priests in the Bible. Um, that they were a kingdom of priests and the holy people. <laughs> So he says that, that's very similar between Hindus and uh, uh, and Jews. And the ethics, he said, was the same. It was the, the same golden rule as the Torah and the Vedas, he said. And the Torah, the Vedas, and Confucius. So um, that was very open-minded, chip.
0: Yeah, this is, this is all quite fascinating. Um, one of the questions that I had in the back of my mind was, Um, You know, Hinduism is the the word that we have. It's sort of the label we have. We use it in world religion textbooks, we use it. This podcast used to be called New Books in Hinduism, Hindu studies. Um, And yet um, Hinduism is sort of this umbrella term for a a plethora of practices and beliefs. And so one wonders perhaps uh, these, these Jewish thinkers and theologians What sorts of, what varieties of Hinduism were they encountering? Were they encountering Vedic, uh, you know, Vedic recitation, Vedantic philosophy, or was it more sectarian practice or temple worship? Or, you know, what was their exposure to, quote unquote, Hinduism?
1: Um, It was temple worship. It it was uh, devotional temple worship, the popular one that that, um, travelers could observe from the outside with their own eyes and then report about this. So that's what that's what, that's what came from, in the Middle Ages, that's what came from travelers' reports. Um, uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra, who lived also in medieval Spain, more or less uh, ignored that aspect of Hinduism and he, he was an astronomer and an astrologer. And he had been studying Arabic books about Indian mathematics and, um, and science. And so for him, uh, what Hinduism was, if you can call it that, but let, let me call it Indian thought. What Indian, Indian thought was, for him, was science. Was, and, and to him, it looked like Aristotelian thinking because they, they, as astrologers and well, as, as astronomers, they saw the movement of the uh, sun and moon planets and stars and um, had important theories about, about all of that, that uh, made their way um, westward into Spain. So, um, oh, oh so, so that was his part of his image. The other part, very interesting, to me, seems to me, is that um, Arab travelers were reporting that Indians were very moral people. They, hadn't, uh, they behaved with innate justice. And if you were a merchant and you came to an Indian kingdom, then the king would guarantee the safety of your merchandise and the safety of your person. And Ibn Ezra even said that the Indians did not need uh, uh, most of the Ten Commandments, which were um, some the ones that were ethical prohibitions, because they were already ethical people. (laughs) They didn't need all of the Ten Commandments. Uh, So he had that image of them also.
0: Uh, I just, okay. I just can't. Uh, I find that utterly, <laughs> utterly fascinating. Um, both, both that that he would make that observation, and secondly, that he would so blasphemously characterize the observation as these people not needing the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yes, yeah,
1: he was a relativist uh, about the uh, Ten Commandments. There were certain uh, commandments that various groups of people not just the indians in the world did not need
0: there's um you know i have to ask you about the usage of a uh, a certain verse uh, uh in the torah genesis 25 um what is it uh 6, six. um mm-hmm. and tell me you know uh, for the listeners tell us uh that verse and its its significance in this context um but also um uh, maybe you can comment on whether they whether all of these thinkers would have relied on that for the explanation of, of India and Indians
1: Actually, only one of, of the ten thinkers when I'm far, only two of the ten thinkers that I studied relied on this particular verse to, um, to interpret the relationship between Judaism and Hinduism, only two. So um, um, none of the medieval thinkers came up with it. Not not even the 19th century (coughs) century travelers (coughs) or the enlightenment geographer. (coughs) um, I'll repeat that.
0: Sure thing, take your
1: time. (laughs) Not even the um, 19th century thinkers used that verse. So I um, as I said in my chapter, <clears throat> I actually came across that verse when I visited Jerusalem after,
0: you'll have uh, to you'll have to for those listening yes. you'll have to tell us what the verse says
1: I will okay um, So I asked uh, uh, some Orthodox rabbis what was the relationship between Judaism and Buddhism, and they uh, referred to this verse and I will. Um, read what this verse says. But to the sons of the concubines whom Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from his son Isaac while he still lived eastward to the land of the east. And they said that verse actually means um, gifts of knowledge that Abraham gave to his Uh, six sons. They went, and and east here means really east, (laughs) all the way to India. Um, And he sent his sons, so he sent his sons with gifts of Jewish knowledge to India, and this Jewish knowledge became the basis of Hinduism and Buddhism. And uh, the followers of Abraham were the Brahmins. Because in Hebrew, um, or Latin, so, Abraham and Brahman sound very similar. So that proves the Brahmins uh, are, are descended from Abraham, intellectually.
0: And I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that there is a flip side of that, that we might be able to find Orthodox Brahmins who would say that, you know, um, um, uh, you know, because because each side, from from a from a theological perspective, might be inclined to obviously um, 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 subsume uh, the, the entire world through a particular worldview. So, what would they say? You know, um, Abraham was a Brahmanical. He left the Brahmanical tradition, and he was <laughs> Abraham.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. I I, I found some, oh, internet pages that said that.
0: Oh, I was I was half joking, when I'm glad that. <laughs> I'm glad that such things exist in the world. Um, that's this is so interesting. Okay. What would you, um, okay, so 30,000 foot via big picture. What do you hope folks would take away from this book overarchingly? What, what's the general uh, thruster message of this book or, or fruit of it? What would you like them to, to learn reading this book?
1: I, I looked at my um conclusion, uh, because I thought that would be the answer to your question. Um, And the conclusion is uh, almost incomprehensible, (laughs) if you haven't read the book already, uh, because it summarizes a lot of what these um, thinkers said. Um, So uh, let me give a a somewhat different answer. First of all, um, as I said before, one takeaway is that there really is a history of Jewish thinking and interest in Hinduism. Um, but that's, I mean, you could know this already from a, a few things that other uh, scholars have written. Uh, second, that history is very complex. Each of these chapters, <laughs> each of these chapters has a lot of information. Each of these chapters has, has a Is based on a complex argument. Um, There really was no simple thing that any one of these authors thought about Hinduism. And what they did think about Hinduism was shaped. What they did think about Hinduism was shaped often by random causes. Whatever. Uh, information happened to be available to them uh, uh, really influenced uh, their their conclusions. So another takeaway is that uh, Jewish views of Hinduism are are really embedded, rooted in a particular historical period and way of thinking, a philosophical language, a view of Judaism, uh, and just information, all, uh, all sorts of information, unpredictable information about Hindu, Hinduism. Um, the, the other thing that I'm, I was interested in the book, and um, really every chapter was moving towards this question, was how did Jews compare... Religions outside the monotheisms. Um, if a religion wasn't Islam or Christianity, how did they go about comparing? What was important to them? So, at the end of each, well, it's an important part of each chapter. I try to answer that question. So, another takeaway is that Jews really did have um, theories of comparative religion. They engaged in comparative religion. Um, it wasn't very open-minded. <laughs> it was did not stand up to uh, modern expectations uh, uh, of how one would compare religions in a <clears throat> fair and open-minded way. But they they did um, develop theories comparing.
0: Now, just just um, just to be clear, the the theorization about. Other religions, this comparative enterprise that you describe—is it fair to say that this all occurred within the Abrahamic worldview, or did some, or were some of them actually able to think outside of that? In terms of biblical time, biblical space, um, um, being uh, heirs of Abraham, etc. Sure,
1: I think the only so <clears throat> most of them could not think outside. The only one that maybe we can say did think outside of a traditional Jewish view of of the world, was the uh, author influenced by the European Enlightenment movement, the Haskalah in Hebrew. And his categories were rather universal ones. Um, uh, God, ethics, um, religious institutions, uh, transcendence; the, the, these were categories that um, well, appeared in Jewish philosophy, but uh, otherwise were not part of the uh, traditional rabbinic uh, Jewish way of <clears throat> looking at the world. But otherwise, it was um, all from within, within traditional Judaism. And um, if I can say more about um, the way they compared. <clears throat> That and um, what I discovered is that, of course, I mean, to be expected, they all considered Judaism the superior religion and the religion with of, of of absolute truth. So when they looked at another religion, even though they might have thought they were tr- they were being objective, they weren't. They were judging other religions by their own religion, and it was it wasn't always the same thing from author to author of their own religion because they had many different views of Judaism too. So in a way you can't say the Jewish view of Hinduism because there were a lot of different Jewish views and because there were different concepts of Judaism. But anyway, they they judged from their own version of Judaism in some way. Um, uh, What I found is A lot of them looked, let's say, uh, looked at other religions from what they consider the essential theology of Judaism. Some of the authors uh, compared other religions based on, uh, say, the morality of Judaism or um, or, or, or what we might call sociology, that is like the, the, the institution of priesthood. But again, that comes out of Judaism. <clears throat> Some of them <clears throat> judge other religions from a concept in Hebrew called dot, which is translated today as religion, but it means a set of social and religious regulations, and um, probably, uh, in, implies uh, revelation and. Um, they would so uh, Jews would judge how much some other religion manifested this essence of religion, and and they included so so this dot, this religiosity, was manifested fully in Islam and Christianity and Judaism, of course. But the question then was, how much did other religions uh, manifest this dot? Um, and what else? Um, another way they compared <clears throat> in, in, uh, implicitly was by using Jewish language or Hebrew language to translate uh, religious phenomena. For example, uh, uh, Hindus would pray or, um, in a Beit filah. Uh, which is a Hebrew word for house of prayer, um, or uh, Hindus would uh, study laws um, and interpret them, and that's sounding like rabbis. What rabbis do, um, and I can't think of other examples. Oh, of, 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 uh, Jacob Sapir, when he described <clears throat> certain Jew, uh, certain Hindu. <clears throat> when Sapir described certain Hindu rituals, he used the Hebrew language of sacrifices at the temple, uh, the ancient temple in Jerusalem. Uh, was he? Did he intend to compare them explicitly? Probably this, this language just came to him automatically, uh, because that's what it looked like. But anyway, so I'm saying that uh, a, a third way that Jews compared religions was simply by using their, the language of their own religion to identify or depict what Hindus were doing. This is a kind of comparative religion. It wasn't, uh, in some ways, it was a failure to imagine something different to find a, um, a a neutral category to describe what Hindus were doing. But still, it was an act of saying, yeah, they're doing the same thing. As uh, our rabbis uh, did, or we did in the temple
0: our, our, ourselves. Certainly, in the time and, and spaces of these thinkers, there was no etic paradigm. I mean, the emic paradigm was all, the, the, was all that was. I mean, it was uh, describing the world always happened from within a religious, moral, philosophical perspective. And that just pretty much was. The way things were in the Jewish world and the Hindu world, and so unsurprisingly, they would they would rely on known structures of thought, known idioms, you know, known religious phenomena. So you know that, that sort of makes sense. One of the key things that occurs to something that, that that stands out in my mind is the extent to which each of these case studies is different, insofar as that. They're sometimes reinventing the wheel. It's not that there is a tradition yeah. of of interpreting Hinduism that's passed on. It's these are individuals who encountered a new, somewhat, and make sense of it with respect to their specific context, their specific mindset, their specific education. I, I find that quite interesting as well.
1: Yes, I mean, I think you're, that is exactly what happened. You're right
0: right um we are at time for today so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast
1: you're welcome I enjoyed it
0: (laughs) I'm glad you had your doubts but I told you we'd be talking about Hinduism
1: I, I apologize for coughing so
0: much. I, uh, oh, that's all right. The audience probably won't even know that you did because we will edit that out. So, you um, will. Okay. Just, <laughs> yeah, just stay on one moment while I formally sign off. So, for those yeah. of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Richard Marks, Professor Emeritus um, at Washington and Lean University, on his brand new Rutledge 22, 2022 publication, Jewish Approaches to Hinduism. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating how religions understand other religions. Take care.